I'm Bill Redman. Hi, Tony Faust here. And I'm Kevin Yeo. Welcome to Odin and Aesop, the podcast where we review and discuss military history books to help understand the events and ideas of the past. Some of these events and ideas shape our world today. If you're interested in learning more about the show and want to get a hold of us or provide some feedback, please visit our website where we've got links to related material and contact information. Just Google OdinandAesop.com, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Twitter. This episode is dedicated to our comrade, Lieutenant Norm Chella, who died on January 5th, 2023. Rest in peace, Norm. Welcome to episode 27 of the Odin and Aesop podcast. This is the story of the SAS team with the call sign Bravo 20 that was scud hunting in the desert of western Iraq during Desert Storm. Within 48 hours of landing in Iraq, McNabb's team was compromised and had to try to escape and evade across 100 miles of desert in brutally cold weather. In the end, the author and several members of his team were captured and taken to Baghdad for interrogation. Bravo 20 provides readers a glimpse into the complexities of special operations planning and execution. More importantly, the book provides a wealth of lessons learned on how not to conduct reconnaissance and surveillance operations. We think this book will provide lots of interesting subjects to discuss tonight. So good evening, gentlemen. Welcome back to the rough and tumble world of reviewing military history books. Kevin, I suspect you've been out on the back roads of Florida getting those miles in as you prepare for our AT walk. Besides walking, what books are on your nightstand? What are you reading right now? I've been uh, been reading The Deserters, kind of a hidden war story of World War II uh, by Charles Glass and Texas Iliad by Gary Zaboli. And of course, our next podcast, Conquering Time. Right now, one of the things I'm doing is I'm taking a, a, a class on golf instruction, I, I find it fascinating because technology has introduced through the, tra- it's called the TrackMan, but basically it's a miniature radar that's giving you all the data points on the golfer's swing and contact with the ball that before it took coaches years of experience to be able to, to see. But now, they can literally, through video and this radar, be able to tell at the moment of contact what the angle of club is. And it, it's just, I just find it fascinating. I'll, I'll probably never coach or, or do any golf instruction. But the technology part of it and then how it interacts with training, I, I'm just finding fascinating. Have you ever seen 10 Cup? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It sounds like one of the training aids in 10 Cup, like the ball hanging off the end of the hat and the rest of it. This is so far past 10 Cup. This is, I I can only imagine that this will be the technology or is the technology that they're using to track drones and projectiles and, and all that. I mean, they're literally telling you the spin rate of the ball as it comes off the club. And it's it's various angles. So I mean, that's the stuff that's revolutionizing baseball as well. All that stuff with spin rate is um, extremely impactful for pitchers. Well, anyways, it's the one thing that's nice about that. It's going to get rid of the creepy golf coach that gets um, a little too close to the young lady. You mean I, I don't get to do that? Unfortunately, Kevin, I think technology is is um, stopping you from becoming the creepy golf coach. Ah, another dream shattered. Right. There you go. 
Bill, what have you been up to? Well, first off, haven't been reading anything, really. That's for, you know, guys that can't handle the real world. That's what I'm saying now. So, no, nothing on the bookshelf for right now. But I did go out, uh, got together with the big Schween and his son, the little Schween, and his dad, the water buffalo, for a day of bird hunting. Went out there on the eastern shore of Maryland, and we, you know, channeled and released our inner Dick Cheney and took down a bunch of pheasant and grouse. So, yeah, there was that, and I think I'm set for at least the the near term in terms of, you know, my inner my inner caveman hunter he's been a swatch and put back in the cave for now did the uh the youngest generation give you a debrief on his time in europe not in depth did you ask him it didn't really get the chance basically apparently it was interesting it was worthwhile biggest adjustment is uh he's down at fort gordon now which is you know, I guess he'd spent most of his time up in uh, Colorado, so he's getting used to, you know, that Georgia clay now. So, and it's just a different environment. So, uh, didn't get a detailed debrief on the whole time in Europe. Mm, interesting. How'd you cook up the bird? Brined him and roasted him. There is room for improvement. I don't want to say the uh, the wife and daughter didn't object, but it was mainly me and my sitting there like Henry VIII with my greasy pheasant legs while they looked on. Uh, so, okay, but there's room for improvement. Wrap it in bacon. Always go with the bacon. You can never go wrong. Okay. So, Kevin, on a separate um, note, have you ever cleaned ducks via the, the uh, bumper hitch? Yeah, I am familiar with the bumper hitch method. Not a big, not a big fan. What, what's your objection? It's just another piece of gear that you got to drag around, pop out. And it, it to me, it really didn't save that much time. The uh, And then it also, a lot of it depends on the species of duck, on how effective that is. Some of them are too small? Some are too small. Um, of course, your mallard is almost like the perfect duck, you know, because it has a looser skin. Some of the skins are tighter on the, on the other flyers or diver ducks, so... It's field dressing to increase speed, Bill. So you're basically just, you're not doing a lot of um, dressing of the bird. You're just yanking the breast out and you use a bumper hitch to do this. Now, if we want, uh, hmm. you know, in the in days of old, you know, when they had the commercial hunting, you know, you get huge quantities of birds. And I can see, especially then, having the assembly line set up. But if we want to do a podcast about cleaning and field dressing. I have the guy, uh, Matt Swenson out of South Dakota. Shout out to you now, Matt. Um, he sent me their recent duck hunt. Him and his boys harvested 55 birds in a single morning. Sweet. Is he the guy who owns the plumbing supply store? Yeah, yeah. His family does. Kevin introduced me to this guy. Quite a good dude. He was having to find some musky brew on the side of the road, which some guy had dropped off to him because he was going for an elk hunt and he needed it to dampen his scent. Um, good man. I will move on to uh, my particular thoughts on what's what I'm up to. Just so everybody knows, this is an important event for me. I'm going to the Bay City Model Show um, in the beginning of February. So I've been working on stuff for that. It will be my first model show, which really won't matter. I'm not really giving a crap if my model wins. I don't really care. But I will spend more money than I bring to the uh, event, which you know is difficult for me. But usually they have people who sell off all their stashes, right? 
So people collect models over 20 years, and then their wives get pissed because they have 500 models. So they got to sell that stuff off. And you get it at bargain basin prices. So their loss is my gain. And because, Kevin, I also am very intrigued with The Conquering Tide, which we're going to review next month. And as I read it, it is a fantastic book. I, we have tons to talk about in that book. The further I go, the the more I enjoy it. But I am building a um, 148 scale Hellcat, um, which is a little finicky, but it is a sweet bird. So I am building that right now just for your... I'm getting myself in the mood. And then the last thing is I am reading another book called Flow, which is really like this whole concept of how do you structure your life for happiness um, and some other stuff. It's that whole zenny thing. How do you get do things to, to do it. Well, let me jump in. Is that related to the, I think he was the psychologist that noted people getting into the flow of what they were doing? That's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole concept. In that vein, I have noticed that puzzling, I don't know if you've ever done any puzzling. No. Julie opened a uh, thousand puzzle piece, which she got on sale after Christmas and it's out on our dining room table. It is remarkably zenny. You can get lost in a puzzle really quickly. Are you going to mount it? No, no, no. You know, you see all, all you guys always think that there's something at the end, like I'm going to do something with my model or mount this or give a crap. I just take it and throw it back in the box. But what it does, though, is it just allows you to focus very intently on one thing and it blocks the rest of the world out. You can do it while still kind of having background noise in your mind. So it's another one of those things I'm, you know, that's what I do. Um, let's move on to mail, Bill, because I know we have two, and then we'll get right into it. Okay. Well, the first one is from Jim Corcoran from Gainesville. Uh, he mailed, uh, says, uh, like Kevin, he's got several got several books for Christmas. Problem is trying to find time to read all of them at the same time. Now, one of them that he received was the Mosquito Ball, which covers a football game that was held on Guadalcanal Christmas Eve of 1944 between the 4th and 29th Marine Infantry Regiments. Both regiments would go on to fight on Okinawa a couple of months after the game was played. The book is written by Pulitzer Prize winning author Buzz Bissinger of Friday Night Lights fame. And anyway, he just thought he would email us with a book recommendation and says, please keep up the good work. Um, must admit, I'd never heard of this whole thing and I'm going to have to look into it. Thanks for the heads up. Do you know the backstory on this? No, never heard of it. So evidently, like there was 44, between 45 and 50 guys that played in the game, right? There was some ungodly number of them were in the NFL, like 40 of them. So they get this game together between the two regiments. They got all these NFL ballers in it. I think something like 15 to 18 of these guys were dead within uh, six months from Okinawa. It's supposedly the biggest death toll of professional athletes in history. I I had never heard of this whole thing. I'm going to read up on it. Yeah, it's very interesting backstory. I'm going to read this book 100%. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. But that's pretty staggering if you think, you know, so you got 45 people there, 15 of them are dead within six months. It was actually within like three months, I think, because they went straight from here relatively quickly into Okinawa. Because when, when did Okinawa happen? Early 45, right? Uh, yes, yes. I'm trying to think. It was, I don't know the month, but February, March, yeah. Like March or April of 45, something like that, because then they get into the typhoon season. So. It's probably, yeah, within six months that, that all these guys are dead. So, you know, Pat Tillman is a one-off in an entire war. There was 15 guys. One battle. In, in one battle from one game. 
again, never heard of this. And that guy who wrote Friday Night Lights, uh, Bissinger or whatever his name is, is that guy's a good author. There's no doubt. So that'll be very interesting. Um, anything else, Bill? I think we have one more, correct? Uh, yeah. We got Robert Castano from New Orleans emailed and wanted to know if we have any recommendations for books to provide historical context to the conflict in Ukraine. He has been working through past episodes, driving to work, episodes as he's driving to work. Did like the review of Stuka Pilot in episode two. Enjoyed the detail we provide on the history of close air support. And he looks forward to the upcoming year and anticipates episode coming out on the 11th of every, each month. Is the ask, is there any significance to the release on the 11th? I think that's just, okay, the way the system's built, I don't know. Don't handle that part. You can fill us in, Tony. But uh, I don't have any recommendations on the historical context for the conflict in Ukraine. I've been trying to find get my head around that. Bloodlands, I think, was a good introduction, but I'm still trying to get my head around how we got to where we are today. Yeah, I start with Bloodlands for sure, 100%. I think it does set the stage to show you that the Ukrainians and the Russians, uh, there's no love lost. So, um, And why the Ukrainians maybe are relatively tough people who are probably down for this fight for the long term because it's uh, national survival for them. And, and if anybody who believes that it's not a national survival issue is naive at best. The Russians at this point, their sole goal is to destroy the Ukraine as a society. That's that's what it is. They, they, they can no longer win militarily straight up. So they're just going to destroy their ability to trying to create a, a desert. Yeah, and in an independent Ukraine has not been a given and it hasn't been around for a while and it hasn't been a given they don't take it for granted and uh they're in a tough neighborhood there's there's not a lot of margin there like you said bill that is a tough neighborhood because if you're if you're poland i mean you're just you're looking at what's happened over the last generations and you're in the same thing we're we're fighting for our survival and it, it would not surprise me if this doesn't escalate a little bit so it is going to be a long, bloody, no-holes-barred fight in that, that neighborhood. The United States and NATO is walking very, very carefully, I believe, to uh, try to limit it to one place. My understanding is that NATO and the U.S. have said this is where they draw the line with Russia. Because Russia has done this, uh, I think, six or seven times in the last nine years. Th this is the new millennium, and we have people that are annexing territory in Europe. This is ridiculous. Uh, yeah, and we're going on year two of this now. We're actually going on year like 10 of this now. Uh, this started 10 years ago. They've been annexing a terrain in Ukraine for 10 years. It, it's crazy. Th this is 2020 plus, and we're annexing terrain. And everybody's like, oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah, it's a big deal. To Robert, keep reading about it. The, the deeper you dig on this, the more you're going to find that th this is going to be a very, very difficult situation for a, a long period of time. So on that somber note, um, please keep the mail coming in. Uh, we are going to do a review of Bloodlands because I think it's a, a, a very impactful book. But please keep the mail coming in. Bill, let's start tonight's discussion with your operational overview on scud hunting, special operations in the Gulf War, and set the stage for our uh, discussion tonight. Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi military invaded neighboring Kuwait on August 2nd, 1990. Iraq gave some reasons for invading Kuwait involving accusations of Kuwait using slant drilling to steal Iraqi oil and hegemonic land claims from way back when. 
More likely and immediate motivations were Iraq owing Kuwait more than $14 billion and Kuwait's oil production competing with Iraq's to keep the price of oil down. That meant less revenue for Iraq. Saddam Hussein figured if he took over Kuwait, he wouldn't owe the Kuwaitis any more money and he would control both Iraq's and Kuwait's supply of oil. Uh, So it's dictator finance 101. Iraq's invasion of Kuwait only took about a day. The imbalance of forces was overwhelming. It also took the world by surprise. It wasn't like major newspapers had been covering ever-increasing tensions between the two countries on their road to war, like we've seen more recently with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Saddam Hussein's opening move worked. He controlled Kuwait. What Saddam Hussein got wrong was underestimating just how quickly and strongly the world would react. The United Nations condemned the invasion virtually the next day. Countries with ties to Iraq, like France and India, condemned it. Saddam Hussein had committed a real no-no in the Clubhouse of Nations. Especially egregious is he'd invaded a neighboring Arab country. That's a real problem with the likes of Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Egypt. In their minds, it was fine for Saddam Hussein to have an eight-year war with non-Arab Iran, but invading an Arab country like Kuwait eh, meant they could be next. The world's condemnation of Iraq's invasion led to the building of a huge international military coalition aimed at dislodging Iraq from Kuwait. It took months, but between August 1990 and January 1991, the United States deployed about 700,000 troops and coalition partners contributed about 250,000 more. It was a big deal and it wasn't a secret what was going on. You can't hide hundreds of thousands of troops piling up in Saudi Arabia with thousands of tanks and planes. Yes, diplomatic efforts at a peaceful resolution were tried, uh, but they didn't go anywhere. Saddam Hussein wasn't going to give Kuwait back, and the world wasn't going to let him keep it. So the United States and its coalition partners kept piling forces in, and Iraqi troops in Kuwait kept digging trenches and building minefields. Around Christmas 1990, all the pieces were set. Saddam Hussein had unwittingly given the United States all the time it needed to deploy whatever it wanted. The coalition's plan for dislodging Iraq from Kuwait had two steps. Step one was the air campaign. It involved thousands of planes conducting round-the-clock airstrikes. We're not talking about a limited number of select airstrikes to send a specific message. This was an all-in deal with thousands of missions a day. Once the air campaign had done its work, step two of the coalition plan could start. This was the ground war. It revolved around big tank formations breaching the Iraqi minefields and destroying Iraqi units who would be weakened by the prolonged airstrikes. And on January 15, 1991, the bombs started dropping. Operation Desert Shield became Operation Desert Storm. Part of Saddam Hussein's response to the coalition airstrikes was to attack Israel with Scud missiles launched from northwest Iraq. These Scud missiles are towed around on launchers in the back of trucks. And these Scud attacks on Israel were not a big surprise. Israel had a long history, even a policy, of retaliating against attacks on its territory. If Saddam Hussein could provoke Israel into retaliating, it would really complicate things between the United States and its Arab coalition partners. Now those Arab partners would be fighting on the side of the Israelis against another Arab country. In order to keep Israel out of the fighting, the United States and coalition had to reassure the Israelis they would do their best to limit Iraqi Scud attacks. Patriot missiles were deployed to Israel to shoot the Scuds down, and coalition aircraft were dispatched to destroy the Scuds on the ground. 
Also, coalition special forces teams were put deep into northwest Iraq to find and destroy the scuds on the ground. One of those teams was made up of eight men from B Squadron from Britain's Special Air Service. Their call sign was Bravo 2-0. Tony, over to you. Bill, thanks for giving us the background on what will eventually lead to Bravo 2-0's mission during the Gulf War. To start with, Andy McNabb is a pseudonym used by Stephen Mitchell, a nine-year veteran of the SES and the author of tonight's book. For the sake of tonight's discussion, we will use the pseudonym McNabb when we refer to the author so we don't end up confusing ourselves. The author was an SAS team leader of an eight-man patrol that was tasked to assist in the suppression of the Iraqi theater ballistic missile threat during the Gulf War. The book we will discuss tonight covers the planning and execution of McNabb's patrol. Interestingly enough, because of how the events unfolded, more than 50% of the book is devoted to the team trying to evade capture once the patrol was compromised. During the second half of the book, the author also covers his experiences as a POW. One aspect of the book that makes the book somewhat unique is when it was published. McNabb left the British Army within two years of his release by the Iraqis. Shortly after leaving the service, he was able to get Bravo 2-0 published, and it sold extremely well. The timing and subject matter of the book is what made it so popular. At the time, there were very few books about recent special operations on the market. In fact, the only other book on at the time was Rogue Warrior by Dick Marcinko, which had just come out a year before. Because of this fact, Bravo 2-0 sold extremely well. I think in the end, more than 1.7 million copies of this book were sold. A movie based on the book was also made. The publication of this book was somewhat shocking because at that time, Delta and SAS operators just didn't write books. In 1993, the existence of Delta was still classified. There wasn't a hundred former operators on YouTube telling everyone their story. So in that regard, Bravo 2-0 is somewhat trendsetting. I would divide this book into four separate parts. The first part concentrates on mission planning. The next part of the book is focused on mission execution. The book then transitions into what McNabb and his team did when they conducted their escape and evasion procedures once they were discovered by the Iraqis. And the last portion of the book covers what it was like to be captured, interrogated, and held as a POW. Each of these four sections of the book provides readers examples of what to do and what not to do given certain situations. They also provide some insight into the mindset of a person confronting the challenges associated with each of those phases. McNabb introduces the readers to Bravo 2-0's team members in the first pages of the book. He also explains the tactical situation and what the SAS had been tasked to do in support of the liberation of Kuwait. Specifically, the SAS, Delta, and SF have been tasked to hunt Scud missile launchers in the deserts of western Iraq. What the author doesn't say is that Bravo 2-0 was one of three SAS patrols that were inserted to hunt Scuds. Each of the teams were told their patrols would be required to operate for 14 days deep inside Iraq. At the time, Iraq was firing Scuds into Israel, hoping that the Israelis would react and sow discord among the Arab nations supporting the coalition. The idea was to have special operations teams operating in western Iraq looking for the Scud launchers so that coalition air power would swoop in and destroy them. As I said before, the first portion of the book is devoted to mission planning. For many, this will be extremely enlightening. The author walks the readers through the whole process of how a special operation team prepares themselves for a mission. Readers learn about what going into isolation means, why it is done, and how it helps a team prepare themselves mentally for what they are about to do. One of the interesting aspects you see in the planning phase is how the team is given a mission and it is up to them to determine the best way to accomplish their tasking. 
The team decides how they're going to be inserted into the objective area, their means of mobility, weapons mix, actions on the objective, and a thousand other details. During the planning, they provide periodic updates to their chain of command and ensure that what they're proposing is supportable by outside agencies. For example, a team may want a certain type of vehicle to accomplish their mission. Hire may nix the idea because the vehicles aren't available or there's no way to get them near the target area. In this case, the team will have to adjust their plan and find another way. Overall, this portion of the book was detailed and really does provide insight into the complexity of special operations planning. So many things need to be accounted for and incorporated into the plan in order for things to go well. McNabb makes the point that the more planning and rehearsing you do, the better your chances are when things go wrong in the field. One final point on this portion of the book. The reader will get a feeling of both the apprehension and excitement inherent in preparing for one of these missions. McNabb does an excellent job illustrating how soldiers who have spent years getting into a unit like the SAS and then training extremely hard just to stay there lose their perspective on risk. If not careful, soldiers like the SAS lose their objectivity and talk themselves into accepting way more risks than they should just for an opportunity to test their abilities in a real-world environment. We have talked about the whole concept of Go Fever in multiple episodes, and you'll see it again in Bravo 2.0. The shortest portion of the book is the part that's devoted to the execution of the mission itself. The reason for this is McNabb's team were only on the ground for about 36 hours before they were discovered by an Iraqi civilian and forced to begin their escape and evasion procedures. On the night of January 22, 1991, Bravo 2.0 was inserted just two kilometers from their observation post along an east-west road in the Iraqi desert. The patrol decided on the landing zone because they were carrying more than 200 pounds of equipment per man. The amount of weight that each team member was required to carry was primarily driven by the duration of the patrol. The extended duration of the mission required each team member to carry a lot of water, batteries, and ammunition. During the planning phase, pieces of equipment just kept being added until every man in the patrol was carrying a prohibitive load. In addition to their web gear, packs, weapons, and other equipment, each man was carrying a five-gallon water can. The amount of equipment they brought required the team to shuttle their equipment from the insert LZ to the observation post along the road. Team members would walk 300 meters, drop their packs, then go back, pick up the water cans, and move those 300 meters. This method of moving required the team to travel three times as long as they would have if they just made the move in one trip. So a two-kilometer movement ended up being more like six. Once the team located the road they were supposed to watch, they started to look for a hide site. What they discovered was the terrain was way too rocky to dig into, so they had to find an alternate hide site. They started to search the area for some concealment so they could hide before sunrise. They were able to find a wadi, which offered them some concealment and a place to hide. When the sun came out, they found that there were multiple homesteads around their hide site. That day, the team hid and waited for nightfall so they could conduct a reconnaissance patrol to locate the road which they had been tasked to watch. They also tried to communicate with their higher headquarters, but couldn't make contact. Part of their tasking was to try to find a fiber optic cable that ran along the road. The Iraqi units using scud launchers were using this fiber optic cable to get targeting data from Baghdad. That night, McDab and several members of his team patrolled around their hide site and confirmed the road in front of them was the one they were supposed to be watching. During the night, they saw two scud launches, so they knew they were in the right location. By the second day, they still had not made contact with their headquarters. So their plan was, was to hide out until dark and then execute their no-com plan. The plan called for them to return to their insert LZ, where a helicopter was supposed to fly out, meet them, drop off another radio, and that would allow them to continue the mission. 
During the middle of the second day, a shepherd came close enough to their location to make them believe that they'd been spotted. At that point, they decided to drop their excess equipment and begin their E&E plan. As they were preparing to leave, they thought a tank was moving towards them, but it turned out to be a bulldozer that the owner was moving into the wadi to get out of the wind and cold. The bulldozer operator definitely spotted them, and the team knew they'd been compromised, so they headed away from the wadi as quickly as they could. As the team moves away from their hide site in the wadi, Iraqi troops from a nearby anti-aircraft position approached them with several trucks and APCs. In the book, the author describes a prolonged firefight in which the SAS troopers destroyed several Iraqi vehicles and killed more than 40 soldiers and held them at bay until it got dark. There are several other accounts about this engagement which point to McNabb overstating what the team did during it. The bottom line is the team was able to break contact from the Iraqis and use the cover of nightfall to escape into the desert. The route they took started south for more than 10 kilometers to give the Iraqis the impression they were headed to Saudi Arabia. They then cut west for an additional 10 kilometers before finally beginning the trek northward. Imagine a giant fishhook shape route. They figured that even with a circuitous route, they could still make it to Syria and safety within three days. It's important to remember at this time, Syria is part of the coalition, so it was considered a friendly country. What they didn't anticipate was having to deal with the historically cold and wet conditions during their escape. The weather they would have to operate in during the coming days was the worst possible conditions you can face. It was cold, wet, and windy with little or no sunshine. In these conditions, it's extremely easy to fall victim to hypothermia. In addition, because they were forced to abandon their equipment when they fled their hide site, they didn't have any protective clothing, water, food, or means for long-range communication. The first night, they walked through a freezing rainstorm and howling winds and were able to cover more than 40 miles. However, when they stopped and tried to contact coalition aircraft flying overhead using one of their survival radios called Attack B, the patrol got separated into two groups. McNabb and four other troopers were in one group, and a soldier named Ryan with two other troopers were in a second group. Ryan would eventually walk to safety in Syria and be the only one from the patrol to escape to freedom. The remainder of the book focuses on McNabb and the soldiers with him. One of the soldiers with Ryan's group died of hypothermia, and the other one was captured. Because the terrain was so flat, the teams had to find some microterrain to hide in during the day. They used whatever they could find to lie down and wait until darkness so they could get up and start moving again. The periods in which they had to hide were the worst for the team because there was no way for them to stay warm. On the second night of the escape and evasion, McNabb and his element moved close to another east-west road. They were concerned that they would not have enough time to cross the road and find a hiding spot on the far side, so they decided to wait until the following night to cross the road. With the remaining period of darkness, they found a small depression they could hide in during the day. In total, they had moved only six or seven kilometers on the second night, which disappointed the team because they'd hoped to cover more than 35 or 40 kilometers. Again, it highlights the impact the weather was having on them. They spent the next day in a hide site that offered very little concealment or shelter for the team. About 90 minutes before it got dark, a goat herder found them and spent an hour with them. Eventually, the Iraqi departed and headed back to where he lived. At this point, the team changed his plans again and decided to go to the road when it got dark, hijack a car, and drive as close to the Syrian border as they could, and then cross that night. Once it got dark, on January 26, McNabb and his team patrolled down to the road and waited for a car or truck to arrive. Within short order, an Iraqi taxi drove towards them. They were able to get the car to stop. Then they forced everyone out and had the driver take them towards the Syrian border, which was only about 35 kilometers west of them. They were able to make it 25 kilometers before they ran into a vehicle checkpoint set up by the Iraqi army. At this point, they were roughly seven miles from the Syrian border. 
In the book, McNabb states that they killed an Iraqi soldier checking the vehicles, and then they fled into the town and west toward the Syrian border. This is another instance where McNabb might have taken liberties with the truth. Regardless, at this point, it turned into a situation where it was every man for himself as they tried to make it out of Iraq. McNabb ended up making it within three miles of the border before it started to get light. He decided to hide in a culvert under the highway instead of pushing onto the border. His plan was wait until it got dark the next night, then make a dash for the border under the cover of darkness. Within a relatively short period of time, McNabb's hiding place was discovered by Iraqi soldiers that were looking for him and his teammates. He was captured on January 27th and would spend more than a month as a POW. One of the most interesting portions of the book is his descriptions of being a POW. He describes in detail the process from his capture in the field to his release and repatriation by the Red Cross. It is clear in this section of the book how dangerous it is at the moment of capture. This is especially true if a person has taken prisoners by soldiers that had just lost friends to you. In McNabb's case, the Iraqi soldiers that captured him spent more than an hour beating him down. These beatings continued during the tactical phase of his interrogation. The Iraqis believed he was an Israeli soldier and treated him accordingly. Eventually, McNabb and the rest of the SAS soldiers that were captured were taken to Baghdad and interrogated by professionals. His description of the interrogation sessions are worth reading the book for because it gives people a pretty good idea what to expect if they get captured today. Fortunately for McNabb and his teammates, the war ended quickly and they were repatriated back to England. After conducting some research, there is little doubt in my mind that Bravo 20 contains some exaggerations that were put in the book to make it sell better. It is a little unfortunate that the author took this approach. Without the embellishments, the story would have still have been extremely interesting to read. I think the real value of this book is that it outlines many of the basic things required to conduct special operations. It demonstrates how complex these type of missions are. There is very little room for error in these type of operations, and soldiers can't cut corners or make assumptions. The book also provides its readers an excellent example of why special operations forces must be extremely selective with regards to the people that they bring into their units. These units require people with a combination of intelligence, physical toughness, and perseverance that is difficult to find. Without these three qualities, none of the soldiers on McNabb's team would have lasted more than a day in Iraq. Overall, we recommend reading this book if you're interested in special operations and military survival stories. Well, that's my synopsis of the book and my thoughts. Kevin, what are your impressions? It just made me grit my teeth the whole time I was reading it. You know, half the time, I'm wondering if the author is just embellishing so much because he, or, or simplifying because he's trying to sell this book. And then the other half, I'm wondering, where, where's the adult supervision in the SAS during this period? You know, the SAS has this great history of operations, of daring do, whole nine. They started in the desert. I, you're just wondering what happened to them. You know, it's a good read in the sense that it, it's quick, it's easy. It'd be a good one to take on the plane. As far as learning, probably the least serious book I think we've, we've reviewed so far. Yeah, no disagreement here. I would just say this. One is, I think at some level, it, the value in this book is reading it as a cautionary tale, if you will. And two, because there's a lot of lessons to be learned. The second thing I brought out in the book review was this concept that this was really one of two books that was out at the time about special operations. There was this in Rogue Warriors. There was a lot more on the market today. And so I concur with you. I think a lot of the stuff that's in this book was inserted to help them sell books, which they didn't really need to. I think people were looking for information on what these guys were doing in general. 
And this book hit the niche, and that's why it sold a lot of copies. Because of that, only being a couple books out in the market, and and let's face it, you got a lot of people who are interested in this. I think it really kind of built a lot of false impressions on the lifestyle and 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 special operations. Ah, oh, let's just run around and you know have a brew and carry 200-pound packs. I think it built a lot of uh, false narratives and expectations and and views of how special operations occur and the people within them. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Bill, what are your thoughts? Two points. I really think David Sterling, who founded the SAS back in the early 40s in North Africa, he would recognize exactly what these guys were doing. And the author kind of talks about that, too. There's this, okay, instead of destroying German aircraft in the North African desert, we're destroying or trying to destroy Iraqi missiles in the uh, in the Iraqi desert. So it strikes me that, yeah, Sterling would recognize what these guys were doing. The other thing that jumped out at me was these guys were isolated. Small team, deep, deep, deep in bad guy country, outnumbered and talking to no one, and it went bad. But, hey, the motto isn't who dares wins for nothing. So just how isolated and alone they were kind of comes out in the book. Yeah, and there was no one to talk to, so help ain't coming. Right. But we'll, I think we'll talk more details on that as we go through this. Yeah, I think we're going to talk to at some level uh, about both those points. Yeah, I just find it very interesting, and it gets kind of to your point, Kevin, that if, you, if you're not constantly diligent, the lessons you learned before can easily be forgotten next week. And I think at some level, that's the cautionary tale here. So a, a lot of the basic stuff that they had paid for in blood, they had to relearn on this particular operation. I agree. I think it, it provides us a canvas to discuss a lot of different things. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. So in that vein, why don't we uh, move on and get to our first discussion topic tonight, which is really, let's talk a little bit about planning for these type of operations. The book opens the window at least a little bit to the novice as to the level of planning required and the complexity of how that uh, occurs. So let's get into that. Let's just talk in a general sense. What are areas that you have to account for when you plan for a mission like this? See if we can give the listeners a little bit of idea on that. I'll jump into it. First thing, when he walked in there and it was like, okay, we've got a tasking for you. Right away, I was like, this, you're flying deep into bad guy country. That's really risky. But I was like, and then I thought, nope, this is a high priority thing, taking care of these scuds. And this is the world in which they inhabit. So they might try and mitigate risks, but you can't play it safe. It is not just a one and done act. This, this planning is a process, and he talks about getting down into the details and planning for the what-ifs and checking. I forget the phrase they use, but it's like check and recheck, and then getting down into the contingencies of what we're going to do. And this comes after learning everything they can. So they start with, okay, what can you tell us about these landlines, these fiber optics? What can you tell us about all these scud launchers? And they try and learn about that. And then they all get together and they figure out, well, how are we going to get in there? Discuss the pros and cons of that. And then how are we going to do this job? And they get into the details of that. So my point is the planning of it, it is very detailed. It's a process and it builds this shared understanding. It's not something someone else does and you just don't hit the wave tops. To me, Tony, the, it, the book answer is mission 
enemy and terrain. You, your planning automatically focuses on those three areas and what you're going to have to do to, to be successful in dealing with those three things. Yeah, I would add uh, actions on the objective as two, uh, as another item, which means what are you going to do once you get to the area of interest and what your actual mission is? You have to plan and rehearse that a whole bunch of times. The feeder question off that is, the longer you've operated in a specific area, you can scope this planning down. And they only really had two days to go through this whole exercise of receipt of order and then go through their planning process. And they were unfamiliar with the terrain that they were going to go in. So what are your thoughts on this idea of getting familiar with the area that you're operating in prior to? And then, you know, what does that do to your planning? Being more familiar with the operating area is going to inform your planning. Just from talking to a few different people on the U.S. side, U.S. Special Forces teams benefited greatly by getting there early and having the ability, when they got there, they were like, wait a minute, this is a big flat desert. This is not Fort Irwin. And they were able to practice digging hide sites and with little, you know, PVC covers and that kind of thing. But they were able to practice doing that and practice communicating. And they were able to do some rehearsal missions, which was that the opportunity to do that was not afforded to uh, this team. Speaking of terrain, and I think it, it's a, a constant thing that you see in the book is that a lot of the SAS uh, operatives, yes, their initial training and their history did occur in the desert and in that. But these guys are coming from, like in McNabb's case, operating against the uh, IRA in Ireland. And you got the emerald green hills of old Ireland compared to what the terrain here is in the desert or in, in the rural areas of Iraq. Hugely different. And I don't think that the team members really appreciate got that appreciation just driving from the airport to their planning center, looking out the windshield and seeing that ground. The um, Operation Anaconda folks, the, the RNS teams that went in to support that operation were all, uh, they were Delta and SEAL guys primarily. And they did this whole thing of environmental development, right? So they would send guys in or and, and do almost practice patrols just to get them used to the environment and feel what it's like. What's the activity of the people? How do they operate? What's the terrain like? What do we have to do? And they get accustomed to it, and then they become better at operating at it. And you don't see that at all here. You're right. They're coming out of Belfast and uh, rural Ireland in some cases, and they throw them in the desert, and then they, they go for it. So... Yeah, that's difficult. He mentions this in the book, and I think it's important for people to understand. Let's talk a little bit about what going into isolation means before you execute one of these patrols. So what does that mean? Yeah, you're right. He does talk about this. Basically, they you're organizationally and physically cut off from everyone else. And there's a couple reasons for doing it. One is it prevents you from knowing what other people are doing. And that is a great relief to everyone involved because if you get busted like these guys did, no matter what happens, everyone knows your knowledge of what 
everyone else is doing is very limited. Specifically, they don't talk to all their mates and find out what other teams are doing. There's the operational security part that is uh, important. And then the other part is it just keeps you focused on the task at hand. So that's the benefits of isolation and you got to do it. Does it have any impact on your mental state before you go in? I think when you listen to him discuss it, you can kind of see this combination of what I refer to as apprehension and excitement to go execute. Does going into isolation help in that regard to you to get your mind right? It helps you get your game day face on and get your mind right. This is you've gone over the line of what might happen to, oh, we're doing this. And mentally, you are now looking that direction, vice thinking about what you were just doing. That is left behind. That is yesterday. This is now. Yeah. The way I like to kind of think about isolation a little bit is, first of all, there's a history to it. It goes back to World War II for sure, when units like SOE were putting people into France and and, uh, occupied Europe. Didn't want them to know anything that was going on with other teams because they were going to get rolled up and then you're going to give up what you know. But the other thing is once you go into isolation, it's like once that door closes behind you metaphorically, you're now so focused on what you have to do because you actually believe you're gone. Because that's like almost the final stage before, you know, going from training and doing your normal stuff into theater to now I'm going operational. So there is a whole purpose behind it. One of the other reasons why it's important is you become singularly focused, like you just said, Bill. And part of that focus is you receive, and and he talks about it in the book, a warning order before a mission like this. And what it's saying is, okay, be prepared to go do this. And then they, they go into isolation and they start their initial planning. Part of that is there is the clock is ticking and you feel it in that environment where you realize you've only got X amount of time. And what you start to do is prioritize things accordingly. And part of that prioritization that you go through is you only have so much time to rehearse what you're going to do when you're out there. What are we going to rehearse first? What are we going to rehearse the most? And what do we have to know what we're going to do instantly if something happens out there? Let's talk about that a little bit. When you talk about rehearsals, the rehearsals are prioritized and units that have trained together and have been in this theater or have gone on previous missions will usually just rehearse actions on the objective or areas that they think are going to be critical or different on this mission. They won't be rehearsing how to cross a danger area or how to set up for the evening because they've done that a hundred times as a unit And so that's a a low priority on their rehearsal. Here, these guys, they have a tough time picking what they're going to rehearse because they really have not worked together as a team. They have to really even concentrate on their immediate action drills. And an immediate action drill is things, what are you going to do if you receive contact on the front or on the flank or to the rear? How are you going to operate to address that threat, negate it, and then move out? And they have to go through that whole process because they're not a team that's been together. How are they going to occupy a, a position where they're going to take a break during a patrol? They have to go through all that. 
And what you really want to be focusing on is what you're going to do down on that road when you're trying to find that cable or destroy a scud site. Something that jumped out on this on this planning part of, of the story is when he gets the tasking, they know it's, okay, this is for real. They go through this whole thing of building this detailed shared understanding of fiber optics and how scud missiles work and what they should be looking for. And they're talking to the intel guy, we need pictures of this, we need pictures of that. And they go through all all this stuff and then he goes into great detail how they plan to do this well well we're going to booby trap these mines because we can't just go and cut the fiber optics in one place so he goes into that and then how they're going to different ways of attacking the scud sites and they're going to do time delays because that way they'll be able to get away but if they can't they're going to set it up this way and how he's got to formally brief this and write it all down so that everyone knows what's going on especially higher headquarters but it just jumps out to me. He doesn't talk a lot about the comm plan uh, and how they're going to talk to people. That seems to be a blank spot in the book. Part of that could be you are on a time crunch. So you have different members of the patrol focusing on different areas of the planet. It's very possible that he had very little to do with the planning of the com- of the comm plan or even the escape and evasion plan, which are, like you said, Bill, pretty short in the book. Let me hit on both of those because I I think they're glaring issues as well. Um, I would just disagree with you in this regard, Kevin. Practically, what you said is 100% correct. They would divvy up different portions of what needed to be done, and individual members would work on that. Their comm guy would work primarily on getting, making sure the radios were there and it, it, they were working. However, comm, it is so central to what they do. Everybody has to know the comm plan intimately because if you don't, it's your lifeline. The same thing with your E&E plan. Every single person on the team has to be on the same sheet and understand it to depth. You can't just pawn that off on one person and say, that's good enough. What I found to be glaring is it did not appear to me that either the comm plan or the escape and evasion plan were exercised, briefed, and fully understood by everyone. It becomes very, very clear when you read this that that didn't happen. Let's talk about those two different things. And in, in, in a general sense, what goes into your comm plan and your E&E plan? Let me jump in. An example of, I think, we're talking about this part that might be missing from the story or apparently is. He talks about how they are going to rely on high, on the 1HF radio. And then if they if they can't get through on that, all he says is that they are going to activate their one of their four TACB survival radios and try and call AWACS. That's it. No specific times, no specific procedures. And that seems a little like there's probably more to it or should have been more to it than that. After all the other detail, he goes into everything else. He doesn't talk too much about about, about how they're going to, if they if that transmission doesn't go, what they're going to do instead. I'm not sure that, that the British government slash uh, SAS or the British Army wanted them to release these type of things. And that maybe that's why they're let out of the book. But that that's why I'm saying it's a blank spot. Vice maybe an omission. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But we'll get into some. We'll get into it in our next segment. I think on on when we talk about some errors. But I, I think it's important for people to understand what exactly when we. T- plan and a comm plan, what that really means and the depth that you go into. Um, I'll, I'll just, I'll start with comm plan. In a comm plan, 
you as a reconnaissance organization, and that's they were primarily, I know they were going to do direct action potentially on a SCUD site, but they were really looking, just trying to find targets for aircraft. When you do that, you build into your plan, what are we going to do if we do not get comms with higher headquarters? Because if you can't talk to people, you are worthless out there. And they were worthless from the time they got off the helicopter until the end of the war because they could not talk to anyone. So they could not tell anybody what they were seeing so that real things could happen. Part of your comm plan is what are you going to do if you don't have it? And there's comm windows. They are going to come up on the radio at specific times. If they fail to do that more than twice in general, in a general sense, they have a very specific thing you're going to do to reestablish comm or to be pulled out because you are not functioning like you should be. So if you miss two comm windows, you're going to head to an extract site. And they're going to, in his case, he said they were going to bring a radio in and give you a new radio. Okay, that's a dubious plan, but it is what it is. Ordinarily, what happens is if you don't reach comm within your second window, you move towards this site where you're going to be extracted. You continue to try to get comm along that route. If you get comm, then you can go back in and do your mission. If you don't, you're going to be extracted. And they don't talk about that at all. When you talk about E&E, you don't just head any direction you want to. You're going to head a very specific direction and you are going to do very specific things so that when they start looking for you, they have an idea because the desert's a big place. You're either going to go to Saudi Arabia or you're going to go to Syria. You're going to decide that before you ever get compromised. There is no winging in these things. There is no, well, we're just going to make, oh, this situation's different. I'm going to do something different. It doesn't work that way. Because when you say you're going to Saudi Arabia and I'm going to go on a heading of, from this point, you know, a heading that's between 10 degrees one direction and 10 degrees another direction, they're going to fly aircraft down that corridor looking for you. There's going to be very specific recognition signals if you don't have a radio. Is it going to be smoke? Is it going to be signal mirror? Is it going to be some sign you're going to put in the desert? And they're going to go through that and they're going to brief multiple people on it. And then everybody's going to agree to that plan. What is their recognition from the aircraft to you to know that you're not Iraqis that are just setting up a trap? Because that could also happen. You can get rolled up. They can they can interrogate you. They find your E&E plan. And then what they're going to do is pretend to be you and then destroy an aircraft. It's very complex It's very required, and there is no fudging it. Because if you're fudging it, you're not a professional. And that's what struck me. And I'm torn, like you said, Bill, did they just leave it out because it was classified and they didn't want to talk about it? That could have been. It's important for the listeners to understand this is not something you just wing. All right, let's move on. So let's kind of look at what went wrong. Let's kind of talk about that a little bit. Go ahead, Kevin. What, What do you think? Just from the start. You've got individuals who are world-class, they're, they're well-trained, they're at the top of their game physically. These guys are like a professional basketball player that's now going to go play on a football team. This team has not worked together, has not trained together, and has not trained on this terrain. So from the start, their foundation is bad. And I think that's one of the main things where they went wrong. It gets back to what we just discussed. It takes a long time to get that that intimate feel for all your teammates so that in the dark, you can just know who's who by the way they walk. And you get to that easily. 
if you've operated with somebody. You know what your immediate action drills are. You know what all of these basic things are so that you can concentrate with stuff like that, uh, like you talked about, actions on the objective. Two basic things jump out, and he sort of alludes to them. One, they did not know, uh, they didn't know how crowded the desert was going to be. When they go on the planning, yes, they have maps, yes, they've got a couple photographs, and they're trying to get into all the details, but they really don't, and they know there's traffic on there, but they really don't know how inhabited the other side of the road is. There's a lot more farms, a lot more of these moving Iraqi unit tent cities, I just don't think, I think they just didn't know that. And the other thing was the environment. It was one of the coldest winters in recorded history in northern Iraq. It's the desert. You would not think that you're going to be facing sleet storms. Well, these guys were. Hypothermia was like problem number one. Uh, So too crowded of a desert and environment was not quite what they'd planned for. He talks about the load they took in, and he says very specifically when they weighed each person that they each carried 205 pounds worth of equipment. Just comment on that and tell, is it practical to carry 205 pounds of equipment? The the way he describes it when they plan it was that, okay, they're going to spend the first night shuttling this incredible cache of stuff to a hide site, and then they'll be set for their two weeks or whatever. I don't care how good a shape you're in, walking around with 200 plus pounds of equipment is a lot. You're not going to be moving very fast. And again, there's, I wish I knew more. All I know is I hear about other teams and other countries driving around the desert, and it seems like mm, that might have been a better option. The 205 pounds goes back to their planning where they can't decide if they're a combat mission or an intel recon mission. So if you plan for everything, you got to carry the gear for everything. They over plan for too many missions, which meets too much gear and like you said, Bill, it doesn't matter how great a shape you're in, you're carrying 205 pounds. Ain't going ain't gonna to work for a long time. Yeah, excellent point, Kevin. I, I agree completely, right? So you don't know what you're doing, so you bring a whole bunch of stuff. What they didn't bring was a bunch of radio equipment. So, Bill, in your experience on a reconnaissance patrol, right, where you're going to report to higher headquarters and you're in this type of environment, what would your four or six man team carry radio wise? And this is like standard doctrinally. That's he only says they've got one long the one HF radio, one long distance radio. Normally we'd carry one HF, one SATCOM, and then also one UHF for talking to aircraft. So that if you don't hear from us on HF, if you don't hear from us on SATCOM, then someone's gonna be flying over at a set time and hopefully you'll be talking to them on UHF and then you can try VHF. Now he does does talk they did have one vhf radio uh, that he he says they would use to talk if they needed to communicate with a helo on short final but for that much stuff it does seem like there'd be room for more than one radio yeah i agree i i it's incomprehensible to me that they wouldn't have at least four radios and let's say they said okay well we don't have satcom well if they didn't have satcom then they would use AWACS as their airborne node Potentially, or if they didn't use AWACS, they would request an airborne node. I mean, that's what I would have done. I need something over the top of me that I can roll to and talk to. If everything goes bad and I need to get the heck out of here, I'm rolling to this guy, this frequency, and I'm talking to somebody. Because without that, you are in a hurt locker. Because the only thing that's saving you are the airplanes that are going to protect you. And that's the SF team that got compromised the exact same way as these guys did 
what they did is they rolled up on a UHF and they aircraft just stacked up on top of them and they just surrounded them with ordnance and blew the Iraqis back away from them till they could get a uh, search and rescue helicopter in to pull them out. So without that lifeline, you're, you're dead in the water. Let me ask you this question when we talk about kind of what went wrong. Was this a gear issue with them? Was this a training issue? Was this a planning issue? Or was it all of the above that generated I guess the mission failure. Kevin, you'd kind of say it's all the above, I would think. Well, I, I think that the the poor planning poisons the well, so to speak. It, it results in the too much gear, the wrong gear. We don't have the gear for the terrain, for the weather. We have too much gear and for the mission, and we don't have the right gear, as you said, for the radios. Our training gets spoiled because... We don't understand what our no-com plan is, so we're not trained up to that. We don't understand when, when comm goes down that I can roll to this frequency unencrypted in the plane and just scream for help, and, and it will work. So I, I think that the planning results in, in everything going south for them. So it just poisons the whole tree? Yeah. Okay. Bill? I go back to my two basic ones of, yeah, it was a lot more crowded and uh, the environment was a lot worse than they thought it would be. But then it, everything just kind of snowplows from bad to worse. And it all starts with a kid herding goats. Right. There's always risk, but now it's gone from risky to, okay, you're compromised and you're in the middle of nowhere uh, when help's not coming for you. I got to throw this out. I just get a sense of arrogance during their their prep and their planning and their initial first night in. These guys, on on one hand, they're just arrogant that they're the SAS and they're just going to roll through these guys. But then they they have this desire to be the super secret. So they, they treat the Iraqi uh, capabilities as far as DFing and everything higher than it probably needed to be. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Kevin. I, I agree with that, too. I think that there was a, a, a large degree of arrogance. Do you think the patrol ever had a chance? I think it had a chance, but I would say I, they live in a world that's filled with risk. My view is, okay, That's if, you, if you're going to operate there, it's never going to be completely safe. I mean, they were in the Falklands, they were sending guys on the mainland Argentina. It's not a safe world, but uh, I, I think it could have worked. Circumstances had them intersect with the herd of goats. Kevin, do you think it would have worked? I think the the mission was correct. They wanted to find these scuds. They wanted to, to keep eyes on this MSR. I think they, they could have done it. No, I, I think that the, the, mission, the mission was correct in the task. Okay. Here's an interesting little side note. I, I'm not disagreeing with you guys. I just, here's this interesting side note. You know, Bravo 2-0 was one of three patrols. There's three roads that go east to west. They were obviously one of the... Th- the three patrols, none of the patrols lasted more than like 24 hours before they got compromised. So it, at some level, it gets back to your arrogance. I'm not so sure that based on what they asked them to do and how they asked them to do it and the terrain, that it was actually feasible, that they, it was almost inevitable that they were going to get compromised. And then, you know, they got a problem. So I have one last question on this particular kind of thing. You know, we've talked about this in many different books so far. One of the universal things in warfare especially for units that have been in peacetime for a long time. And the, the question I have is, it's this concept of go fever, right? Where you override like rationality 
just to get in the fight. So do you think that that concept, this go fever, negatively impacted their risk evaluation? My opinion made from a distant observation is no, is that I think these guys know full well that their occupation involves incredible risk and that that's what they do and that this was just another, okay, this is what we signed up for. It's part of the world in which we inhabit. Kevin? I think so. If they would have really looked at their mission and that they wouldn't have had a team of eight, they would have either went farther to the left and went with a smaller team, a lot of water, a lot of radios, no demo, get up on the mountaintop and just watch the road and report with the radio. Or they would have went old school with the vehicles earlier, like their their ancestors, Sterling, would have had a couple vehicles and would have conducted the mission that way. But they had that go fever. This is how we are. We want to get into the mix. So let's take all our gear and go go get some. Yeah, I fall with you, Kevin. And I agree with you, Bill, that the world is a dangerous place and you just have to accept a certain amount of risk. But the reality is there's accepting risk and there's just being dumb. And in this particular case, I think they were falling on the dumb side. They wanted to get into the fight so badly that they would say and do anything. And it gets back to your arrogance point, Kevin. If you have arrogance and don't evaluate risk correctly, you can get into some really bad situations. And I'm not talking individually, Bill, where you're saying, well, that's part of the game. That's true. But if you just say, oh, we're so much better than these guys, we'll just, we can do this, this, and this and get out of it. You're not Superman, right? Bullets don't care. Um, And that's what they all found. Let's move on. A large portion of the book is devoted to McNabb and the different SAS members' experiences as POWs once they were rolled up by the Iraqis. So let's talk a little bit about that because you don't really hear much about that in books because, one, it just doesn't happen very much. And two, people don't write about it as much. I'm going to ask you to start off with a question. What do you think about like the, the Iraqis interrogators? Did they know their business And how difficult was it for him to resist that? I think it's important to think about the Iraqi interrogators. They're kind of different than the United States in that their police, they do regular police interrogations at times to, to solve crime, to figure out who did what, the same as our police do. But they also do operations solely to, to terrorize the, the public and support Saddam at this point. Uh, they're the guys that are dragging you out in the middle of the night, and their sole purpose is to cause terror at times. Now the war has started, and now they have the additional tasking to gain short-term intelligence and long-term intelligence. And so they have that background of the police and also the terror causing. So I think that's important to understand. These guys come from a different background than you'd see somebody in the U.S. I don't know. All I gathered from the book was you can see McNabb is trying to put together what do these guys know specifically about the team. They mentioned, like he figured out a couple other people have been captured and got a bit of a story. And he can kind of make out some differences in personalities and level of understanding. He made a couple notes where it's like, "Mm, this guy speaks real good English and it's apparent he went to Sandhurst. So he knows something about the British Army, but he doesn't really at least in the book, we don't get a real good picture of what they pieced together on what these guys were doing, just what they knew about 
him and his team. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, I think it would be a little disconcerting if the guy is interrogating you went to Sandhurst or, in our case, West Point or the University of Ohio, Wesleyan or whatever, right, and knew their system really well and had served. I think that's a little disconcerting. He mentioned a couple times in there where he was going to be the gray man, and at first he kind of plays dumb. He's kind of the British Army, the daft laddie there, where his whole thing is, oh, I'm just a medic. I only joined the Army because I I, I needed the money and a job, and I was working in a hospital in Britain, and then Eureka, I was on a helicopter, landed in the mid, and then as it goes on, mm, there's no, that's not going through a translator. And the guy who's been to Sandhurst that speaks English is a little more savvy on the British Army, isn't going to be buying that as much as maybe someone who's not. So that, and he mentions that in the book. Right. So you talked about Seer School a little bit. And for the listeners, it's a formal school on how you uh, escape and evade and resist interrogation. And <clears throat> all of the, Folks in the SAS go through a version of that. There are versions in the United States. All of our pilots go through SEER school. All of our our special operations guys go through a SEER school. It's a requirement. Do you think that by McNabb and his crew going through SEER school, did you get a feeling in the book that it helped them or not? I'm going to say yes. Again, you can only replicate things so much, but it gave them a basis starting from the time they were compromised a basis for and a certain skill knowledge level to start making decisions and doing things okay we know they've all got a certain level of survival skills and once they get captured they have at least a basic understanding and some skills to deal with the situation and you can see and also not just what to do but what not to do and he mentions it in there late before they even left they knew okay if we get captured we don't want to know a lot of things so that's why they went into isolation when they did get captured he knew okay we're going to try and be the gray man here based on our rank and everything and then we knew he mentions okay we're going to try and hold that out as long as we can uh so you can see him trying to apply some of the things that he had learned previously so i'm saying yeah he talks about it in the book multiple times in this phase where things like trying to develop a rapport with the people who are guarding you, trying to develop a relationship with them so that they will stop beating you. He mentions it quite a bit during the thing, like where the Iraqi jailers might like British football. And they'll they'll try to build this rapport by talking to them about Chelsea or Manchester United or a specific player. And it was interesting how he, he weaves that in, and he does it throughout the book. Let me ask you this question. Can you resist interrogation? No, they can resist but only to degrees. And that's why they talk about the tactical uh, intelligence and the operational or the longer-term op, uh, intelligence. And that's a change from, you know, in World War II, World War I, it was like, don't tell them anything, don't tell them anything. And guys were coming back, and they were just wrecked that they had broken. But the reality was, if, if you can resist giving the tactical intelligence long enough so that your organization can prepare for your capture, you've succeeded. You've protected the, the unit. 
And then the the longer term stuff, sooner or later, they're going to get it. But that's that's really a lot of it is what they're going to get anyway through diligence, especially nowadays, you know, the capabilities of your aircraft or, or something like that. They're going to get that through other I, th- I think they'll get it through other uh, other means. But I will point out that developing that rapport with the guard is a two-edged sword. McNabb is trying to figure out how I can appear as a person, be his friend, so he doesn't beat me. But if they learn too much about McNabb, they learn what buttons to push too. The idea that you're just going to go in there and not say anything, no, you're going to say something. The other part is the idea that you're going to go in and maintain a very elaborate cover story. No, you're not. Um, it's this idea that you that hopefully you can hold some things. Hopefully you can hold some things longer than other, uh, but you're going to say something. And the other part is you can go in and try and be the tough guy and it's not going to work for you. But he does talk about trying to be careful about what he says. He's not in control. And he talks about trying to sort out who are the personalities of what do they know? Because if they already know something, are you how much are you going to sacrifice hanging on to it? And who can he build a rapport with? And you're right, Kevin, they are all very hesitant to say anything about their personal lives. And that, that goes today, too. To answer your question, can you resist? You can, but you're going to say something. And I think the author does a really good job at kind of describing the difficulty in keeping his... It's important for uh, people to realize you're going to be sleep deprived. Your fear factor is going to be off the charts. He talks about his adrenaline spikes because he knows he's going to get beat down. So every time the door opens, he's ready for a beat down. And that causes your adrenaline system to just overreact like crazy. It'd be interesting to know what you guys think about this concept of trying to keep your story straight. The other thing you don't have is you're not going to have the benefit of any kind of a, a backstopping for any cover story. If you're captured out in the middle of the desert in a culvert after they've been chasing you across the desert, okay, we know you're a British soldier. We can figure that out pretty quick. We found a couple of the other guys and we found a, your your equipment. So right away, any sort of backstopping on some kind of fake identity or really elaborate cover story that's going to hold up any kind of research, it's not going to happen. And so you're starting at a whole different level. And and that's where your resistance starts at. They already know who you are, what organization you're from, what branch you're from, what country you're from, and uh, they've got all your stuff too. So you're not going to tell them that you're someone completely different. It ain't going to work. The the person with the cover story is going to have to keep two or three details straight every time. And the minute they break on one of those details, or that detail is proven to be false, then it just cascades for the person being interrogated because now he has to come up with another story to explain why they found that lie or why that they're, they're, no, 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 that's really true. You're just looking at it the wrong way and come up with additional details. And so it just continues to, to fall apart. It's not so much that the information in the cover story is important for the interviewer. It's that you're breaking that person down mentally to where they just want to give up and tell you what you want to know. Whether or not you have a brother or sister or anything like that, it's not really important to the operation or or tactically, but it's important to the interrogator because that's helping him break you down. I think that the vast, vast majority of 
people who are captured in war, their intel value is very for a very, very short time. You know, maybe they know something, but but as far as long term, yeah, they're they're really just torturing the person at that after a few days. I recommend um, if you haven't read it, The Interrogator. It's a book about a German Luftwaffe interrogator during World War II, and the ways that the Luftwaffe. I read that, and that's a good example of the skill that can be involved in this. That guy was pretty slick there, where he even noticed, like, oh, this guy's, you know, his coupons or whatever were scratched out on the same countertop as another guy. So obviously these two guys know each other. So, hey, let me go introduce you to your buddy. Or he also used the card tricks with, uh, with the, it'd be like, oh, look, your squadron, you know, your squadron number or whatever, and uh, never touched the guy, but demonstrated all the stuff he already knew. And it was just like, okay, they already know everything about me anyway. So what's the damage in talking to him? And they start talking, but that is a insightful book. Which gets back to your whole point, Kevin, a two-edged sword about building these relationships. Well, these guys would build relationships with you too. So I think it's just an excellent part of the book. I really thought it was a rare insight into kind of that whole experience of the tactical intel where the guys are beating the crap out of you to try to you know figure out where you are. And the other portion to that was he had to try to prove to them that he wasn't an Israeli, which isn't easy given that environment. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. But let's move on. So let's talk about the inaccuracies in this book and how you perceive those. And do you think it negatively impacted the overall quality of the book? This is a fascinating story. And this is a good book, in my opinion. Uh, I understand other views have been expressed. When I read this the first time, I was focused solely on the ground and what he is saying they did, the story on the ground of of the eight-man team. Then when I read it again something where I think there appears to be a blank piece and where I think some of the differing opinions might come about is what's going on with communications outside of the team. I said earlier, he goes into great detail about what they're going to do on the objective and how they planned this whole thing out and everything. But when it comes to using the ground-to-air radios, the TAC-Bs, the whole thing is pull the tab and call for AWACS. I think there is a lot more to that piece that he doesn't talk about. He did have to run this book through the British MOD and have them uh, certify. And I don't think they cared about the inaccuracies of the firefights and the rest of it. To them, that's just that's noise. What they're caring about is he providing the general public TTPs on what they do and information that they consider to be sensitive. Kevin, what do you think about that? You're right. The the British go through the book for the for the tactics, techniques, procedures that that they don't want broadcast publicly. For me, the inaccuracies in the book were exaggerations or just outright falsehoods, probably written really just to sell the book. And it took away for me as a you know, when I read this type of book, I'm reading it more for lessons learned, you know, the, the true story on how these how this went. And it took away from the book for me. Uh, so I didn't I didn't enjoy the book because of the, because it was so exaggerated at times. And, yeah, you need to watch that video. Uh, I just found that, you know, 
fascinating that he was able to find the farm, you know, the a boss, the guy who was the the guy that was living in the farm who's who was eight years in the Iraq Iran war and says, Yeah, we shot over their heads because that's the way the Bedouin greet each other, you know, at long ranges to get each other's attention. And uh, if he would have just stopped and waved and come on over, it, it, it would have all been good. You almost want to think that, you know what, if they would have just landed, walked up there in the middle of the night with a pocket full of uh, gold, they probably could have just camped out in the, in the guy's farmhouse and watched the road from there, drank tea. They like to do that in the book quite a bit. So I'm a little torn, and I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? It's somewhere in the middle between what the guy in the video says, which nothing happened, and this is all lies, and the reality of the situation. I think that the middle ground is, I'm not sure, because when he made that video, the bath party was still in control, and it would not surprise me if they didn't engineer some of those witnesses for him to describe what went on. So, you know, especially later in the E&E, not necessarily the farm. I believe uh, I believe that guy's story, that there was no huge firefight there at all. Right. Everybody he interviews, you, you got to take it with a grain of salt. I, I When they say that there was no pack or the pack didn't have anything in it, well, okay, you know Bubba, a uh, policeman or, or farmer, yeah, I'm I'm stealing all that stuff. A, a lot of that's not making it. But when they talk about how many people were killed, probably probably they're pretty accurate on that one. Bill, any other thoughts on kind of the inaccuracy of the book? Uh, no. Let me just ask you this. When you read it the second time and you kind of knew, because when we read it the first time, we didn't know any of that, right? We read it right after it was published and it was like the jobs we were in, it, it was an impactful book. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. There wasn't a lot of books that were on this type of subject out at the time, so you took a lot of the the stuff that was in it as as being accurate. When you read it a second time and you knew that there were some inaccuracies based off research, did it impact it at all, or, or did you just like try to compartmentalize it? I guess I still find it fascinating story. I can't find. There's no particular part that I desire to dispute in the story. But the second time I read it, I was like, "Mm, I'm wondering what went on outside of the story that's not in there. So again, I don't dispute any any particular part in it. But I want to know if there's a missing piece of that whole puzzle that uh, might shed some light on the whole thing. I have one other thing to say. I think that regardless of if it's accurate or inaccurate, there's a lot of lessons learned to be taken from the book. One, don't land on the X if you're doing reconnaissance mission. Two, don't bring 205 pounds worth of equipment per guy. Three, have a plan to realize what are we going to do if we're compromised by a civilian who's a kid? What are we going to do? It can't be figured out on the fly. It has to be in your planning. Four, what do you do with a no-com plan? Five, how are we really going to talk about E&E and really be real about it? There's so many lessons learned in this book, if you read them and you you put them into your procedures correctly, it makes you better at your job. If you're in this type of business, you should read this book because whether or not it's accurate or not isn't the point. The point is these lessons can teach you things that you can put into your planning, your execution to make you better when game day goes. I just add number six. 
don't fall in love with your own force structure. Don't fall in love with your own, I've got to do it to, to satisfy my own. I think you called it the go fever. You're 100% right. There's a bunch more lessons that I'm not, I'm not articulating here. But I agree that one of those things is you can get this idea uh, and it's an arrogance that you can do anything because you've been training for so long and you want to do it so bad. Just be careful, especially early in a conflict. The SAS in World War II was early in the conflict. They were doing this for the first time, and they wanted to get into the mix, and they did some crazy things. These guys did some crazy things. Anytime a war just starts, and people have been in a a peacetime environment for more than five or six years, you can convince yourself and fairy dust away real issues. If you think you're going to carry 205 pounds, I don't give a, I don't care who you are. You can convince yourself you can because you do deadlifts, but good luck. One last point, always bring a second radio because uh, one just ain't going to make it. Let's close it down for tonight. So Bill, as we close the show out, do you have anybody you want to recognize this month? I do. It's a bit of a sad note, but I um, want to recognize a Norm Chella who recently passed away after uh, this battle with cancer. We were fortunate to know Norm and serve with him, and he left too soon. So, But uh, we will always remember him and his family in our thoughts. So, Norm, thinking of you. Yep. Rest in peace. Kevin, any recognition this month you'd like to pass on? My shout out is kind of a symbol of, I think, the industrial might that we had during World War II as we're starting to read our next book. Uh, I just kind of felt that this was this was appropriate. My shout-out is for that unsung hero, if you would, of, of the U.S., was uh, William P. Lear. You know, Mr. Lear was born in 1902. He died in 1978. But he was a self-taught American electrical engineer and industrials. He completed the eighth grade, quit school, and at age 16, joined the Navy. Uh, had to lie about his age. So, and then during World War I, he studied the radio, and then he was discharged. He designed the first practical auto radio for Motorola. And then he designed a universal radio amplifier, one that would work with any radio And by 1939, more than half the private airplanes in the U.S. were using his radio and navigation equipment. And then after World War II, he uh, introduced a new miniaturized autopilot that could be used on the smaller uh, fighter aircraft. His companies and he designed over 150 different uh, sound systems and miniature communication satellites ended up producing one of the first private uh, compact jet. So when you look at his his life and how he contributed to our nation, I, I just think it, it needs a shout out. Yeah, if you drive around um, like Chicago, there's all kinds of Lear industry campuses Obviously, I don't know if he was from Chicago, but he, there's a large portion of his thing. I know they build the jets down like in Savannah, I think. But I think all the electronics you're talking about were all around Chicago because there's all these campuses down there. You've- so Lear and his innate understanding and mastery of electrical engineering, him and guys like him and busting the curve for years. No, we do not. We do not celebrate him. Been driving everyone else's grade down forever. But I'm envious. Bill is a systems engineer from the Naval Academy. Was um, not top tier there um, academically. Neither was I in my own discipline, which was weak. <laughs> he did struggle through with those curve busters. So 
uh, good for you, Bill, for your perseverance there. My recognition, it's in line with our next book that we'll talk about in a little bit. But as I was getting into what the U.S. Navy was doing in the Pacific in the 43, 44 timeframe, I started looking into some of the fighter pilots that were out there. And my recognition goes to Captain David McCampbell. He is the, the, the Navy's leading ace of all time. He has 34 kills. He graduated from the Naval Academy in 1933, got his wings in 1938. He is a Medal of Honor winner. He was on the Wasp when it was sunk off Guadalcanal. I think we read about that in the book as well. He went on to be a air group commander, and his air group was Air Group 15, and they were on the Essex. During the six months that that wing was deployed into combat, it uh, went through two major sea battles, the first and second battles of the Philippine Sea. The Air Group 15 destroyed more enemy airplanes both airborne and on the ground than any other group during the war. I think it was something like 315 uh, kills in the air, and then they had another 348 on the ground. His distinction is he is the only American to be an ace for a day twice, which means you get five kills in a single flight, and he did it twice. He did it the first time in June of 44 during the Marianas Turkey shoot, when he shot down five Judy dive bombers. That's the code name for a Japanese dive bomber. He did that on a single mission. Then he went up again that day and got two more kills. But on October 24th, 1944, during the Battle of Leyte Gulf, he shot down nine aircraft in a single mission. When he landed, he basically was out of gas and out of bullets. So this guy was the real deal. Commander McCampbell at the time, this is his awards, just so we know. Medal of Honor, Navy Cross, Silver Star, Legion of Merit, Distinguished Flying Cross times three. He has a Arleigh Burke destroyer named after him uh, today because of his service in World War II. What's interesting is, although he was the third highest ace from the war, he was the highest surviving ace because like guys like uh, Colonel Bong, who was an Army Air Corps guy who fought in the Pacific, he didn't survive the war, and I did the second one. So this guy was the real deal, and I think it goes in line with uh, what we're going to talk about next month. And next month, we are going to review The Conquering Tide by Ian Toll. This is the second volume in Toll's Pacific trilogy on uh, the war in the Pacific during World War II. It covers the period between Guadalcanal in 1942 to the Battle of the Philippine Sea in 1944. This is really the pivotal period of the war as the tide shifts in favor of the U.S. and the Japanese are having to come to grips with the fate that that they are about ready to receive, which it's not whether the U.S. is going to win, it's how fast and how devastating are we going to be. Ian Toll is a fantastic historian who really helps to bring military history alive to his readers. The three of us really enjoyed reading this book and are looking forward to our discussion on the war in the Pacific. I think it's going to be a really good episode. So please join us in March for episode 28 of the Odin and Aesop podcast when we discuss the Pacific War in the pivotal years. You know, Kevin, as always, it's important for you to save some money and support your local library by checking out all manner of books like Ian Toll's trilogy. Do you have any closing thoughts tonight, Kevin? I got the uh, Ian Toll book by putting the arm on my my son, and so I got it for Christmas, so even cheaper. But anyway, failure and success both can teach us a lot. And, and this book, even though the mission was a failure 
and the book itself uses some questionable details or facts, it does teach. And for that alone, it's worth the read. So encourage everyone to quick look at it and hopefully uh, listen to us. Yeah, I agree with you completely on that last point about the lessons learned. So I concur. Bill, any closing thoughts for tonight? No, just take us out. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to learn some more, please check out our website. Just Google OdinAsop.com, all one word there. Uh, we've also got uh, a blog connected to it where you got links to uh, further readings and uh, some videos and resources. If uh, we've got contact information there, uh, if you want to get a hold of us, we would love to hear from you. And we've also got a PayPal link if you'd care to make a donation to support the, uh, the podcast. Uh, but thanks for tuning in and talk to you next month. Stay on the net. Out here.